Thank you. Well, good morning. Now, as Tim says, we're going to start this new series in the book of Jonah. And it's a very small book. I think it's quite a familiar story. I think even people who don't read the Bible probably know about Jonah and the big fish. But this is not a story about a great fish. It's a story about a great failure and a great God. So we're going to start by reading verses 1 to 3 of the first chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to free from the Lord. To put that quite simply, God said, go. Jonah said, no. And God said, oh. <laughs> but this book is actually very profound. It's not a simple story. And perhaps we need to just unlearn some of the things we thought we knew about it. Certainly, as Tim says, Jonah was a reluctant prophet. And it's the only book in the Bible that's about a prophet rather than a prophet's words. God told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and warn them that unless they changed their ways, there would be serious consequences. Now, in every era, era of history, there's always been one nation that was threatening their neighbours. At the moment, it's Russia with Ukraine, China with Taiwan, but in Jonah's day, the bully boys were the Assyrian Empire, with its great city of Nineveh. Now, Stuart, who was meant to be today, but it isn't, um, he suggested, he gave me some notes, and he suggested why Jonah said no. First of all, he thought he would look silly. You know, nobody was going to take him seriously. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why we don't share our faith as often as we could or should, because we don't want to look silly. Just, I've got a lovely friend who I've been praying for for 40 years, and I've given her Bibles, books, prayer cards, tracts. I've tried talking to her on numerous occasions, and nothing. And she's getting older, and I'm very concerned about her future destination as she gets you know, nearer the end of life. So I thought, I'll write a letter. So I wrote her a letter explaining the gospel. And I said, you know, if you could get into heaven by being a nice person, you would be the first one through the door. And I poured out my heart in this letter. Now, she's a lovely person. So when I next spoke to her, she thanked me for the letter and said, it's so lovely to get a letter through the post these days. But the content of the letter, not, not at all. So I think sometimes we're just hesitant to share our faith with people because we don't want to look a bit silly. Second thing that Stuart suggested was that Jonah thought that people might be hostile towards him and they might treat him badly. You see, for Jonah to go preach at Nineveh would be like asking a Jewish man to go to Nazi Germany during World War II and tell them to repent. Not likely. And thirdly, Jonah was a nationalist. He thought that God should only love his nation, the chosen people, 
God could not possibly love the Assyrians. They were the enemy. They were wicked people. And Jonah's sin was in thinking that he knew better than God did. It's like saying that God shouldn't love Russians or Fulani herdsmen or supporters of Islamic State or even your awkward neighbour. Absolutely, he doesn't approve of what they're doing. And unless they accept God's offer of forgiveness through Christ, then they will suffer the wrath of God in the future. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love every person right now. He does. We might not understand it, but God is love. And fourthly, Jonah didn't believe that the Ninevites would listen to him. He was a Jewish prophet. Why would they listen to him? And you know what it is? It might be embarrassing. They might be angry with him. And I think sometimes, aren't we like that? Aren't we afraid to share our faith and tell people the gospel? Because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to embarrass them. And we don't want to lose their friendship. Craig Grishel, in his book, The Christian Atheist, says that actually the reason we don't share our faith is because we don't really believe in hell anymore. A little while ago, I um, had a conversation with a close relative of mine who was an atheist. And so I said to her one day as we were chatting, well, look at it this way. If you're right, and when we die, we just go to oblivion, well, then neither of us will know anything about it, will we? It'll just be a win-win situation because we'll not know. But on the other hand, if I'm right, and there really is a heaven and a hell, I still win. She was furious with me. And I'm not allowed to speak about it ever again. However, you can understand why Jonah headed in the opposite direction and got on a boat heading to Tarshish, much further in the wrong direction. Tarshish was bustling and exciting in the place to be. Jonah went west when he should have gone east. And running from God is not only disobedient, it's utterly, ultimately self-destructive. I mean, what is the point? Psalm 139 says, Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So what kind of man was Jonah? The commentary seemed to vary uh, concerning the character of Jonah. Was he a weak, self-serving man? Was he a rebellious, stubborn, selfish sort? Or a homebody? Perhaps he just preferred the status quo. He didn't like change. His name means dove. Now, recently we've had a pair of doves coming to our garden feeding table, much to the annoyance of the resident wood pigeon who doesn't like to share seed. Now, I like watching the antics because Pi, the wood pigeon, he gets on the roof of the table and he flaps his wings and he pecks at the dove. But I've noticed that while the doves are not aggressive, they're not easily intimidated either. They do try to stand their ground. Sadly, the wood pigeon is a lot bigger, so he usually wins. However, the doves keep coming back and they persevere. And Derek told me recently that the difference between success and fa failure is perseverance. So it's hard to tell really whether Jonah's name suits him at all, but you can see why he thought it was a foolhardy thing to go to Nineveh. 
Just moving on to the next few verses, we're going to read now verses 4 to 8. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep, get up, and call on your God? Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now you can see that the, the word Lord is written with capital letters. And that shows that English translators were signifying the name of Almighty God. And some translations read that God hurled a great wind. And I really like that picture, you know, the sea's calm. And then God hurled this great wind. It's such a good picture. The pagan sailors cried out to their God which were no gods at all. Their polytheistic culture, they had loads of gods to choose from. But they realized that this wasn't a normal storm, but they couldn't be sure which god was angry with them. They were praying, but Jonah was sleeping. I have no idea how Jonah could be sleeping with such a huge storm going on. The ship was almost breaking up. There'd be the creaking of timbers, the howling of the winds, Jonah just seems to be in profound denial. He just is avoiding facing up to the situation. And the way people today turn to drink and drugs, trying to escape the problem, but it's no escape at all. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus was asleep on a boat in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's called a sea, but actually it's a lake, but the winds come sweeping down from the Golan Heights, so it makes it very vulnerable to sudden storms. These storms can spring up very unexpectedly, and it certainly took the disciples by surprise. We read that the waves swept over the boat, and Jesus went on sleeping. Jesus could sleep peacefully in the middle of a storm because he knew he had authority over the wind and the waves. When Paul Badams was speaking to us a few weeks ago, he told of a time when he was a small boy, and he drew a picture of Jesus on the cross and he drew a smiling face in the sky. When Paul's dad asked him if this smiling face was the sun, he said, no, it's God. When asked why God was smiling, Paul replied, because he knows what's going to happen next. In that case, it was the resurrection. But Jesus could sleep soundly on the boat because he knew what could happen next. He could still the wind and the waves. Now you might ask, why did the storm come in the first place? Jesus could have prevented it from happening. True, but seeing the power that the Lord had over the storm would strengthen the faith of the disciples. In verse 26 of Matthew 8, Jesus said to them, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? They had to learn to trust him in every situation, and so do we. Life comes with storms. We can't escape them. Professor Margaret Spurford a lady who has a progressive, painful bone disease and who lost a daughter to a rare genetic disorder wrote, 
God is not an insurance policy. Because you believe in God doesn't mean that you won't get cancer, doesn't mean that your partner won't get cancer, or your children won't die. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means that you have a belief that out of those deaths and profoundnesses will come some good that you cannot at present imagine. So back to Jonah. There was a prayer meeting taking place on the deck while Jonah was asleep below deck. The non-Christians, the pagans, were acting with more faith than God's man. It seems that right belief is no better than wrong belief if there's no action. James tells us that we're to be doers of the words, not just hearers. So in verse 7, the sailors cast lots, a bit like rolling dice. It was a bit of a sort of gamble. And on this occasion, it works. And the sailors find out that the culprit is Jonah. Now think for a moment. Who was actually suffering because of Jonah's disobedience? Because of his sin and selfishness? That would be everybody else. The sailors and the captain, they had to throw their cargo overboard. They lost their money. Their lives were in danger. Jonah's actions had consequences. So do ours. I have a neighbour who they don't do their garden. So as a consequence, their weeds grow over into our garden. So we all suffer because of somebody else's actions. And that's the profound nature of sin. It affects others. Our decisions have an effect on other people. But God's mission is to save people from their sin. He had called Jonah to be a part of that mission. So the storm was an example of God's severe mercy. He pursued his man Jonah with a fierce love. Now, we only have a few verses here, and it's a bit of a challenge to think, what can we learn about our God from these few verses? It would be understandable to form the opinion that because Jonah's disobedience led to a storm in his life, we need to be watching our step, thinking, ooh, well, if we do anything wrong, things are going to go wrong. If we disobey God, we'll get into trouble. Things will go wrong in our lives. But it doesn't work like that. God's response is not that of a vengeful deity in Jonah's life, but an action to stop him in his tracks and stop him from going the wrong way. There was a lot for Jonah to learn about the character of God, and it was for his own good that God sent the storm. Not a punishment, but a discipline. In Hebrews 12 and verse 6, it says, God disciplines those he loves, and he punishes those he accepts as a son. Lex just loaned me a book by R.T. Kendall on Jonah. And just more or less saying, you know, God is not out to punish us, but sometimes if, if we don't know the Lord's discipline, then we are not true sons. So it's when God is ignoring sin, and when God isn't doing anything, then you think, oh, then he's really annoyed. Um, because it's just a more worrying thing if God isn't reacting to sin which makes me worry a little bit about this nation. You know, you think, hmm, where are we going here? However, the storm in Jonah's life was a consequence of his disobedience, but we can read in Matthew 14 that Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go to the other side. The disciples were being obedient, doing as the Lord had instructed them. Unlike Jonah, they were doing the right thing, but they still rode straight into a storm. It, 
It hardly seems fair, really, does it? You know, these were disciples who loved Jesus. They were just doing exactly what he told them to do. But the boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. I wonder if you've ever felt like that in your life. You know, wind and waves against you. Life just being buffeted from one side. It just at times think that life is not fair. We're sailing along, you know, blue skies shining at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. Bluebirds singing their songs. Nothing but bluebirds all day long. When suddenly the storm clouds have gathered and those bluebirds turn into crows. But we all have. You know, we've all had that experience, or we know somebody who's had that experience where life is just ticking along nicely, and then there's a knock at the door. I'm, I'm afraid there's been an accident. Or that call from the hospital asking you to go there immediately. Or the oncologist looking at the results. Or the call to the office to say that your job's been made redundant. Even that bill that you weren't expecting that now means that you've got too much month left at the end of your money. I, I think, you know, the disciples were out there in the storm being tossed by wind and waves. Now, it's one thing to suffer from the consequence of wrongdoing, but an entirely different feel to suffer from what is doing right. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was on the shore and he was watching. He wasn't unaware of the problem. He's not unaware of your problem. And he's not unaware of what any of us are facing today. And while the disciples were struggling, Jesus was praying for them. And the wonderful thing is, he's praying for you right now. So while we're in the storm and Jesus is praying, what are we supposed to do? I like what Max Licardo says in his book, In the Footsteps of the Saviour. He says, when we're in the storm and Jesus has not yet come, we keep rowing. Much of life is spent rowing, getting out of bed, fixing lunches, turning in assignments, paying bills, routine things. But don't give up. Don't lay down the oars. He is too wise to forget you and too loving to hurt you. When you can't see him, trust him. The disciples had been rowing for as many as nine hours when Jesus appears to them walking on the water. And Max Ricardo goes on to say, They didn't expect Jesus to come to them in this way, and neither do we. We expected him to come in a form of peaceful hymns, Easter Sundays, or quiet retreats. We expected to find Jesus in morning devotionals, church suppers, and meditation. We never expected to see him in a divorce, a, a death, a lawsuit, a jail cell. We never expected to see him in a storm. But it is in the, in the storms that he does his finest works. In the storm, he gets our keenest attention. He could have stilled the storm hours earlier, but he didn't. He wanted to teach his followers a lesson in trust. To focus not on the storm, but on the storm walker. We cannot sink beneath the waves. Hebrews 6 and 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Jesus is the anchor, bringing us safely through the storm. Our series looking at Jonah is a serial. So you have to come back next week or listen in online to find out what happens to Jonah next.
I'm just going to ask the band if they'd come back up now. But before I finish, I'd like to draw your attention to another prophet who was facing storms in his life. These were not the kind of storms due to the weather, but storms due to illness and depression and persecution. Jeremiah was a prophet at the worst time in Israel's history. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And he wrote in Lamentations chapter 3, He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call out and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. That sounds really awful, doesn't it? But when we get to verses 21 to 24, Jeremiah does what we should all do when we are facing the storms of life. He says, But this I call to mind, and this I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen.